Welcome to The Bridgehead with Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to The Bridgehead. We're so glad you could join us for another installment of our four-part series on uh, children's literature. And a lot of you might disagree with me characterizing uh, this next author, artist, cartoonist as children's literature because her fan base does, in fact, span uh, across age ranges all the way from the very, very young to the elderly. And I'm talking about, of course, Lynn Johnston, a Canadian cartoonist who, if you don't recognize her work, you will have seen it before. Or I should say, if, if you don't recognize her name, you will have seen her work before. And that would be the newspaper comic strip, For Better or For Worse. And in the cartoon world, Lynn Johnson was considered somewhat bra- groundbreaking simply because she was the first cartoonist who aged her characters in real time. So people following along with the strip uh, would see marriages and anniversaries and babies being born. And the strip went so long uh, that the Patterson children, since the Patterson family was uh, the family that she drew and wrote about, uh, went all the way from children to uh, married professionals with children of their own. And that's when she uh, finally stopped the show off after decades. Now, I've always really admired a lot of her work because I think it would be very difficult to do what she does. She's a storyteller. She's an artist. She's a cartoonist. Uh, in, in many cases, she's a philosopher to uh, keep a storyline. And in her case, uh, what ended up being, I think, dozens of different storylines going at the same time must have been a quite an incredible feat. And it's a testimony uh, to the success of what she did, uh, that so many people followed her work and read her work. And the number of awards she's gotten has, are, are incredibly numerous. She started off as the first woman and first Canadian uh, to win the Rubin Award in 1985, uh, then followed that up with a Gemini Award for Best Cartoon Series in 1987, and so on and so forth, from National Cartoonist Society, Comic Strip Award. Uh, she was uh, made a member of the Order of Canada. She's been given multiple honorary degrees. And, and basically, her work has been recognized as a significant literary contribution uh, to the Canadian canon. And a lot of people might struggle with the idea of a cartoon being considered literature or even art for that matter. But I think that people like Lynn Johnston and Bill Watterson of Calvin and Hobbes prove that uh, they can, in fact, be both of those things. And uh, a recent book that came out, uh, her most recent book, I should say, is actually a discussion of, of, the, of the art of Lynn Johnston. And there's actually a, uh, an official art show with a lot of her drawings uh, that was launched out of Ontario and, and has, has been going around. And I wanted to talk to Lynn Johnston because I, I think that what she does is quite unique, and I thought it would be a, an extremely interesting discussion to have just because I think writing is easier than writing, drawing, and cartooning. I, I think doing art would be easier than doing all of those things at the same time. And so I think that uh, people who have the skill set Lynn does uh, offer something very unique, and their perspective, I think, on storytelling, on art, on how exactly uh, you can get millions of people to invest in characters that you created in your imagination 
is, is, is something uh, really worth hearing about. So without further ado, I present a conversation between myself and the Canadian cartoonist Lynn Johnston. You recently went on tour, did you not, to display your artwork? Uh, the, um, Sudbury, the Gallery of Sudbury, Ontario, has um, asked me oh, about two years ago if I would be interested in doing a, a show at their gallery, like a real gallery show. And two years later, it actually happened. Uh, my daughter wrote a book to go with it, and uh, they did a lovely, dignified show, which uh, was impressive because I, if I had designed it myself, I would have done it with lots of comic and imagery and lots of bright balloon colors and things like that. But right. they did a very dignified show, which gave the uh, artwork some real credibility. You know, like mm-hmm. cartoonists very rarely get taken seriously. But you've become one of those cartoonists who has been, because uh, you did something unique, and your name often comes up in association with people like well, like Bill Watterson, and, and you've said you didn't yeah. really expect that at all. I, I just uh, finished reading your newest book that came out, the, the retrospective on your artwork, where you sort of trace your oh, evolution. Oh, one, yeah. Yeah, where you trace your evolution as an artist, and how does it feel to be in the company uh, that you're in? The company? Well, you know, I feel... I feel quite equal to Bill Watterson. I do. I mean, what we did was unique to ourselves, our personal selves. We're both good at drawing. We're both good at storytelling. Mm -hmm. We both wore out at about the same time. You know, like I would speak to Bill when he was ready to quit. And and the pressure sometimes from outside to, to, to have you do more and do better. And there are times when you just feel empty and, and, and unhappy. And I think that happened to him, you know, before it happened to me. I know it happened to Gary Larson. He just wanted to do something different. He couldn't think of anything more. And because my characters grew and changed, I think it added some longevity to the strip. It made it easier for me to carry on. But it is exhausting. Uh, So as I was uh, was just saying, a lot of people were very relieved when you didn't pass the strip on to someone else. There was a lot of, of mixed feelings because nobody wanted to deal with the strip without Lynn Johnston as, as the writer, without the characters emerging from your imagination. What brought you to that decision to not pass the strip on to anyone else? Well, you know, if somebody was capable of carrying on the strip with my style of writing and my voice, why the heck wouldn't they do something of their own? Right. You know, if they if they had that kind of skill, I mean, and it is a skill. It's it's. Uh, I didn't realize how rare it was until I I got into this business where it, which is so, you know, it 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 really is a heavy duty job. I mean, there's a lot of you put a lot of pressure on yourself, and a lot of other people put pressure on you. And the pressure to do better than every day than you did the day before. I mean, it's you know you really have to be an A-type personality, and you have to be able to write, draw, act. You have to be able to set up scenes the way a, a film producer would. I mean, it's storyboard the way an animation. I mean, there's so many different things that you have to be able to do. Mm-hmm. But if you can already do that, why work on my stuff? Go do something of your own, for goodness sakes. <laughs> right. I, I just thought. Some poor person, otherwise you'd need a team of people, someone to draw, someone to write, and then it turns into a, a cookie-cutter thing that, that it becomes, I, I would think, very stilted and very forced. When you stopped writing the strip, 
did the character stop living on in your imagination or yes so at that point yes. that that last strip that you wrote where you said that you know April went off to Calgary and uh, Michael kept on writing and signed a book deal and uh, you know Anthony and Elizabeth had children together that was that was the end of it for you too yes it was because my my marriage ended right you know my marriage had ended in 2007 and um, I had told all of my staff that I was going to retire when my seven-year contract was up. So in, you know, around, you know, 2001 or 2002, I started the seven-year contract. So I had told everybody that when the contract was up, I was going to end the story because I could see where I was going to run out of good ideas and maybe become cavalier about the work. And it, it wouldn't be good anymore. I was like like Bill Watterson and, and Gary Larson, I knew that there was an end to this. And so um, as as the dates became closer and closer, mentally I was winding up the story in my head. Mm-hmm. And at that time, my husband was having an affair with the woman he hired to run my company. And that had been going on for a long time. So when I found out and he left for her... Um, you know, my whole life was just in crisis, and yet I had to put all of that into a box, lock the box, write the strip, draw the strip, get it out, and then as I climbed into bed at night, that horrible box would pop open, and I would mm-hmm. relive what had happened, right? Life was crazy. So every time I sat down to draw John Patterson, I was drawing my ex-husband. I was thinking, you know, I was trying to think independently of what real life was. And maybe I had done that right from the beginning, you know, because a, a cartoonist lives in a fantasy world. My, my kids could walk into the room and be holding a piece of cake right before dinner time. They'd say, Mom, can I have a piece of cake before dinner? And I'd say, no, and there they were with a handful of cake stuffing it in their mouth, and I didn't see. They used to laugh about me all the time. Mm-hmm. My, my son's favorite quote was, can I have a raise in my allowance? Because I would always say yes. I wasn't listening. I was drawing. I couldn't bounce out of that fantasy world and, and deal with reality. So, you know, a, a life and a marriage is all so complex and complicated. Who's to say what happened to that marriage? But at that time, I had to end the story. It just had to end. Mm-hmm. How did your fans react to, to your marriage ending? I know there was a lot of speculation when when everything was going on um, by your fans because a lot of people got attached to your real life family through the strip how did that sort of make everything so much more complicated you were as you say living in in two different worlds but with an enormous amount of overlap well what was interesting was about how greedy people are to climb into your window and to see what's in your house and in your soul and in your life mm-hmm. right and I, could, I, I sympathized with all of these Hollywood people who have, you know, uh, greedy hunters going through um, the files at the city courthouse and anywhere they can go to find, you know, it, having moles in hospitals so that if you go in with an ulcer, suddenly it's in the National Enquirer, you know. I mean, I suddenly felt a connection to all of these people whose lives are on display because they've accomplished something that is visible, right? Whether you're an author Mm -hmm. or a a producer or an actor or whatever, you know, if your name is out there, people are greedy to hear the dirt. 
And that was impressive. I, I couldn't believe the lengths to they, that they would go to to try and uncover who the other woman was and how this had happened and when it had started. I mean, and online there was all this, this gossip <laughs> aside from my little life. And I'm not even... I'm not even recognizable on an airplane, right? So I was impressed by that. I was impressed. How did you and your family manage to cope with all of that? Um, I think we were we were very um, uh, high road about. I don't know. There's got to be a word. Dignified. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. I mean, I didn't badmouth anybody, and nobody was badmouthing me. It was something that happened, and you just move on. And privately, deep down, we shared our concerns within our family and tried to unravel what had happened and how and why. But as far as as far as telling a story, I think the book that you've just read tells the story for the very first time. Right. I mean, and that's, you know, it's many years later. It happened in 2007. Here we are, you know, eight years later, and, and now we're telling the story, but I think it's still dignified. I think it's it's what happened, and, and there's, you know, you can't really call somebody a villain, just as you can't call somebody a, a hero. I mean, it's, everything is so complex uh-huh. that things happen, and you move on, and if you can be mature and adult about it, you... You have to blame yourself as much as you blame the circumstances and the other person. There's enough to go around. So mm-hmm. you just you, you deal with it and move on. So how how do you live day to day life now without this fantasy world that, that it spills over into? Is it is it a relief? Is it is it is it... a relief. It is okay. a relief. Yeah. Because some people would have would have suspected that it that it would create some sort of an escape, but with the overlap with your real life. Perhaps it just made things messier. Well, people like Charles Schultz, for example, really could couldn't he couldn't retire. He just he talked about it, but he needed he needed that every single day. He not only needed the strip and uh, and the act, you know, and the ability to to talk and, and and draw in little boxes with funny pictures, as he said, but. He enjoyed the camaraderie of the people in the office, and, you know, it was a routine that he didn't want to end. Mm -hmm. And he worried that he would die before he could end the strip. And I said to him, why don't you write two weeks of of dailies ending the strip? Like, uh, Charlie Brown actually kicks the football, and Lucy is nice to him, and uh, Penny has a bath, I don't know. But however you however you would like to wind it up and put that two weeks into a vault and and it's only accessible when you're ready to let it go. And he said, oh, I couldn't do that. That would be tempting fate. That would be like asking for death to appear on my doorstep. So, you know, he he was very much part of the work that he did. And others are like that, too. There are, I mean, I'm a, I belong to the National Cartoonist Society, and it's, a family, a huge family of wonderful, talented, creative people who just put their hearts out there and, you know, just their heart and soul. They bear everything out there in the newspapers and in comic books and greeting cards and whatever their skill is, animation, they're out there. And they won't stop till they can't go any further. Right. But then there are people like me who say, I can't do it anymore and I've got to stop now. 
So you stopped, and there's a lot of reasons yeah. for that. And, and, and now you're in Vancouver. Yeah. Now anyone who's read anything about your life that you've published in any of your retrospectives or that newest book that just came out, uh, it's I, I purchased it at Chapters. That's where it's available. Uh, what, what made you move to Vancouver? Well, I grew up here. I, this is this. I've always thought of this as home. I grew up, you know, like about five blocks from the house I'm in right now. I went to the school that's around the corner. I have friends and family here, and and a lifetime of experiences because I've come back and forth many times every year to see everybody. And now it's again, it's a relief to be back in the community that I daydream about and that I I I just feel so attached to. There are many reasons for leaving North Bay. Um, the The past was always there. It's a small town, so I was always walking into the people who were part of that story that was so traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, my house was too big. It was a giant house on a huge piece of lakefront property, and you know it had a boathouse and a guest house and massive lawns and gardens, and it was beautiful, but far too much for me to manage. My daughter was around the corner, and she also had a big piece of lakefront property, which was more than she could manage. And uh, her husband is from Vancouver. Katie went to art school here, graduated from the Emily Carr University, and she has a degree in fine arts. And we all came back and forth thinking, wouldn't it be nice to live here? So last year, when it was a 40-below winter, and we were working on that book, which meant we didn't get a holiday at all. Right. Uh, we sat in a hotel room in Mexico with the kids and jokingly said, well, why don't we just all move back to Vancouver? And suddenly the lights went on because I didn't have any more employees. My last employee retired. So um, suddenly the lights went on and we said, okay, let's do it. And thinking about it was much easier than doing it because it was taking two big households, putting them into one smaller house and living together. Like I live in the basement of the house in North Vancouver. And for, you know, two houses in North Bay equals one house in North Vancouver because of an insane real estate price. Oh, right. Yeah, no, I, I went to university in, in Vancouver, so I remember just what it cost to find a place to rent, much less purchase. I know. So you went to journalism school here? I went to, I actually did history uh, at Simon Fraser oh. University, which I don't know if you've been there, but it's this, yeah. this concrete bunker on the top of Burnaby Mountain. I know, I know. It was a very controversial building when it went up, yeah. Yes, Arthur Erickson had said that concrete was the new marble, and he was wrong. Um, <laughs> because if you combine the gray with the fog, it, it doesn't make for a very uh, a very wow. cheerful place. We see we saw the sun just a few times a year. It was a bit ridiculous. Oh, gee. <laughs> Not a good place to study. No. So, so what, what do you do when you're in Vancouver now? Uh, in, in your book, you talk about how you wanted to become a quote-unquote proper artist. Um, although, as your as your art show and this book proves, you already are one. But you you mentioned that you just kept on on reverting back to cartooning when you started drawing because that's just uh, so built into in, into your nature and 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 your entire you know childhood adolescence uh, career has built you into this cartoonist and, and and you can't sort of circumvent the instinct. So, what are you doing in Vancouver now? Actually, I when we moved in, we moved in in September. And it's taken this long to sort of get things out of boxes, get things organized. I mean, it's one of the most anxiety-provoking things that I've done. I mean, aside from the divorce, I mean, it is an overwhelming shock to your 
to everything around you and to you uh, to move like this and to take two huge households, get rid of all the things you think you don't need, and then try to pare everything down to one house with an apartment in the basement. It was overwhelming. So I'm just starting to look. I mean, I'm looking through a doorway now into a, a bright space where I have my drafting table and my easel, and I have not done one thing since I moved here because I've just been t- pulling things out of boxes and trying to find clothing and where, where are my scarves and, you know, whatever happened to my sewing kit and, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. I mean, you're just living in this chaos. So now things are starting to come together. The thing that Katie and I have been focusing on is fabric designs. We've done quite a number of fabric designs, and we've had fabrics made up. I worked with a designer who works with Vogue, actually, who lived in North Bay, and we've created a a whole series of fabric designs, which we're hoping to continue and eventually to market. And I'll, I'll be making a presentation to the National Cartoonist Society on fabric designs in May. And so this is this is where we've gone, not knowing. It's like um, it's like when they discovered the hologram, you know, to say we have the answer, but we don't know what the question is. What I was looking for was fabric for adults that was wonderfully fun, but but um, but comic and and colorful, but not not stupid cartoons, but really cool stuff that from a distance would look like Paisley. But close-up would would be wonderful images that were all integrated. And so we've got pages of birds and pages of cats and dogs and birds and dogs and cats and fish and little characters and faces and robots. And, I mean, all these funny, funky images that why can't we get king-size bedsheets made with wonderful, colorful images for adults? Why not? Why not evening dresses and cummerbunds and ties? Why not? So we're in the process of now just doing Why Not? And that actually was part of our show in Sudbury. And the show that's just wrapped up in Sudbury now is going to be touring Ontario. It's going to go to St. Marie, and it's going to go to Halifax, I believe, or Fredericton. So, uh, you know, you have to contact the folks in Sudbury because they're, you know, marketing the show right now. Mm So do you have any other stories left in you? You, you... You've created you, well, you, yeah. you've, your whole life is on paper at, at this point, right? You've written this last book, as you say, is the first time you told that story. It, your autobiography sort of stretches from your earliest memories until now, and then you have this parallel world that sort of uh, mirrors your life and sort of doesn't. And and now you're working on these other things. Have you ever thought of of writing a book without pictures? Absolutely. And in fact, I have an outline that I'm working on, but it's terrifying to tell anybody about that because they'll say, oh, well, when will your novel be ready? Right. Well, it's a big job, right? And you have to have the discipline and the incentive and the, and, and the, the, the private space, actually, the quiet private space mm-hmm. to do this. So I have my outline. I've, I've only just really figured out how I'm going to do it, but now is that leap where you're at the very top of the water slide. You know that water slide that is so steep you don't touch the water until you get halfway yes, down? Actually in That's the, where I am now. I'm the, climbing up to the top of that water slide and I'm going to decide, am I going to let go and go down it or am I going to stand well, at the top I, and think about it? I, right? see, I see what you mean because the water slide that's closest to where you live now is called the Valley of Fear. Oh, well, yes. In fact, it is a Valley of Fear. 
you know, because it's it's putting something of your soul out there Mm -hmm. and hoping that someone else will take the journey with you and when they're done, say it was worth my time. Right. It was well worth my time. So that's where I am right now is I have the outline, I have the story, and I'm just at the top of that water slide. Well, the I'm journey sure. of fear. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's uh, there's thousands of, of of Patterson readers that are looking forward to taking that journey with you. So, what would you say to all your fans? And I'm sure you've had this question before. Who just can't let go of the story you wrote? Who want to know what's happening next, even though the story has ceased to live on in your head? Well, there have been talks about doing a series of books for reluctant readers who are young people between the age of 6 and, and 16, perhaps. Okay. And uh, I'm working with Universal Press Syndicate to do a series of graphic novels which would have a music component. It would carry April's life and her garage band on oh. through a series of graphic novels, and it would connect to the Internet in that um, it would be uh, a garage band that actually existed online that there would be the music that they play and would invite young people who are interested in music to keep up with the characters in the graphic novels. We're talking about doing a series of perhaps 10. But this requires a a group of people to work together with myself. This would require other artists, other writers, because it's a big project. And right now, we're talking about, I mean, I'm telling you something that, again, is like the novel. Mm-hmm. It may never happen. Right. But that's how everything that actually does happen begins. It's that discussion around a coffee table, you know? Right. And so um, we're at that discussion around the coffee table stage, and um, some of my, uh, you know, editors and people at the Universal Press Syndicate are you know, they have access to a lot of different people and animators and writers for television and things like that. So we're at the talking stage, and it will require musicians to set up uh, to set up uh, the type of, of simple garage band tunes that a drummer could learn, a, a, a guitarist, uh, you, you know, somebody playing a saxophone perhaps, mm-hmm. of young people, and through by the time you would get to the 10th, graphic novel, you would not only have enjoyed um, a, a, a series of stories about April and her young friends as they grew and, and, and became performers, but you would actually gain a musical skill yourself if you followed in online. Oh, okay. That's the plan. Well, that sounds pretty interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll wait it's to see what happens but there. It's just, I mean, we're at the what if. Right. So the what ifs are, what if the fabric designs took off? Well, wouldn't that be cool? What if Lynn actually did, got down and wrote this book? Wouldn't that be cool? And what if this series of graphic novels happened? I mean, these are all what ifs, but then every single one is at the top of that, except for the fabric designs, which I feel very comfortable and confident uh-huh. with. But the other two projects, we're on the climb up to that water slide. Okay. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for taking the time to tell you what your, your newest plans are and about your big move. Well, thank you for your interest. I, I often think about how has-been I am, so your call was really a breath of fresh air. Thank you. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that was Canadian cartoonist Lynn Johnston of the comic strip For Better or For Worse. I'm so glad you could join us all this week, and we hope you'll tune in against next week for more interviews, and we hope that you and yours have a great weekend.